Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. And now, here is your host, the lovely, delightful, insightful, and all-around great gal, Ms. Barbara DeLong. Afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Nightlight. As always, I have to thank Ken Quiethawk for that amazing introduction. I'm really excited today um, to have Jason Jarrell back with me. Um, he is an amazing gentleman, and he and his wife, co-authored a book called Ages of the Giants, A Cultural History of the Tall Ones in Prehistoric America. And they are investigative historians, avocational archaeologists, and public speakers. And other than ancient history, they study their studies include philosophy, comparative theology, religion, and, and many, many, many other topics. He is a frequent guest on all sorts of shows, radio shows, TV shows, and podcasts, especially this one. And his knowledge of the, and the way that he approaches his, his wisdom of the age of giants is, is just mind-blowing. Um, I have the book. I've read it several times. I have tagged it, underlined it, um, marked it up to the point where I'm embarrassed to even share it with other people now because it is so obviously well <clears throat> documented. Um, it, is, it is the kind of book, those of you who know me know that I have a fascination with giants. There's a section of it on my website, and Jason was kind enough to actually write an article for that, that particular part of my website that is fascinating as well. I think that one of the things about him that, that so impresses me is that he documents and, and he's not going to put anything out there for you that, that in any way, shape or form, he can't prove in, you know, more ways than one. And I thought by the time I got to the end of his book that he couldn't shock me anymore because he did change my philosophy on giants. And um, I didn't think that was possible, but he did. Um, and I got to the back of his book, and I kept saying, okay, that's, that's amazing. He can't go any further. And then he did. In the postscript section of his book, there is a part called Arianism, Eugenics, 
and ancient giants. And when I read it, my jaw dropped yet again. It was like he had opened up another door that I just didn't know was there. And I kept saying to myself, this is all you're going to give me on this topic? After, after, you know, the tantalizing tidbits you gave me, this is it. And I was happy to learn that he is expanding on his writing. He is going to be going into those topics in yet another publication, which I, I can't wait. I can't wait to read. And, and I, I just, I, I have to say that I'm so looking forward today to the material he's going to be sharing with us because it is absolutely mind-boggling. And I consider myself well-educated. I mean, two master's degrees for Pete's sake. And I didn't know, not even, well, maybe one or two little bits, but, but for the most part, I was totally unaware to this, uh, to this material. And um, I'm so glad that he is here today to share with us and is actually writing yet another book. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Jason. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And I really appreciate your comments on the book and your appreciation of the postscript on eugenics. Uh, I guess I should confess that after doing the research for that section of the book, I was hesitant to actually include it at first because the information was describing something so monstrous that I wondered whether or not it should be a part of of the first book, but the response to this information has been so overwhelming that I've decided to discuss it in further detail on shows like this one. Well, you know, you look, you know, it it just, I I knew the term eugenics and Arianism, but but in completely different contexts. So when you spelled out the whole thing to me and, and you did it meticulously as you did the entire book where, where it's documented and, and you refer to other places so that, so this is not just you taking off on a, on a flight of imagination. This is something that actually happened and is happening today. Well, it is something that actually happened and is happening today. In fact, What we're going to talk about today is a narrative of history that actually shaped the world we live in and continues to shape it as we speak now. Uh, The the concept and the topic of, of eugenics and where it actually comes from is relevant for a number of reasons. Not only did it formulate society as we live in it today, but uh, in many ways it represents possibly the greatest recorded evil in the history of mankind. And I believe that today people believe in small evils. They believe in random events uh, where evil things happen, such as 9-11 or a school shooting or something of that nature. But people have forgotten that there are large evils and there is a very real existence to to what we consider evil to be. And um, that's one of the things we're trying to draw attention to with this information. Well, I have to admit, when I went looking for graphics to put on the slide for the show, all I could think was, 
these are just so horrific. How can I put these up on a blog talk slide? And I, I pulled out the, the, the gentlest ones, but it, it was horrifying to me that, first of all, the history of it, second of all, the people involved in it, and third of all, that it's still going on. Yes. Um, essentially, eugenics is a practical aspect of a belief system, and as such, it can evolve to suit any society as long as the belief system remains intact. So that ability to adapt is what has allowed uh, this type of world system to perpetuate itself. You know, the information that I assembled regarding the true origins of the worldwide eugenics cult really came as a result of the research into the the ancient giants found in many prehistoric tombs in the Ohio Valley and elsewhere in North America. Uh, my wife Sarah and I found that not only were there actual gigantic skeletons found all the way up to the 1980s, but we found that um, the realm of anthropology and archaeology intersected starting in the 19th century. And there's a real story that developed out of that sort of rabbit hole. Um, and it's very, very important because it perfectly illustrates the potential consequences of allowing sick people with arcane beliefs to seize control of the science and politics of a major world power. Well, yeah, and I think what, what overwhelmed me, first of all, you know, I, I, I know Blavatsky, I've read Blavatsky, never occurred to me that, that that was what she was preaching, and yet that's what she was preaching. And, and it, it, it just, it, to me, it was, it was an awakening. It was pay attention. And I think, at least from my perspective, a lot of people just aren't paying enough attention to something that is ongoing beneath the surface, but it's being fed and fueled by, by groups of very, very rich, influential people. And in many ways, they're changing the way we're thinking and feeling about our own culture and shifting the focus of humanity. Yes, we'll be talking about Blavatsky uh, in our narrative and the roles that people like her really played in helping to spread this sort of race mysticism or genetic mysticism. And um, the, the fact is, as we're going to make clear today, the reason why there's so much influence of this cult over society is that it's been there for so long. Many people look at the horrors of World War II and they just assume that that was a Germanic concept, that that was the nationalism and the racial prejudice of Germany. When in fact, you know, Germany was just a part of a vast quilt of nations that had different forms of the same religion taking over public institutions at the time. You know, this is 
nothing new. It's very old. It's It's been around for a long time. It may be as old as uh, the first civilization. We simply don't know. But indeed, uh, there are many people, including uh, famous icons such as uh, Helen Keller, who were devout eugenicists. Uh, later on, we'll be talking about William Butler Yeats, also a devout eugenicist. It really surprises people when they, they read some of our work and learn uh, how far-reaching the tentacles of this ideology truly are. You know, before, before you go further, I think a lot of people out there don't know what eugenics are. Want to describe it? Well, eugenics, uh, and and this is the difficulty with this subject, depending on which time period and country we're discussing, eugenics takes on different forms. But you might say that eugenics is a scientific dictatorship which seeks to manage the life and death of the population usually by marginalizing or diagnosing specific groups of people one layer after another as deficient and eradicating them. Ultimately, eugenics can have a nationalistic basis, as it did in Nazi Germany, uh, or it can simply have a liberal basis, as it does in America today. And what I mean by that is if you look deeply into the government health care plan that was foisted upon us some years ago, you'll find numerous mechanisms ingrained into the architecture of the medical establishment that are eugenic, eugenics-based programs, including death panels, uh, proposals for euthanasia, and other things. So... Again, one reason people aren't very cognizant of eugenics is its diversity. It can adopt a different form depending on which nation is hosting it. But what does not change are the beliefs of the elite group who invented eugenics. That is the one constant, and those people have no problem lying to entire nations of people in order to implement their national policies. Um, but when we think of eugenics, you could say that it targets specific racial groups. It will target people who are considered uh, deficient or handicapped or undesirable. It will target the poor. And in many cases, it targets the working poor. We're not just talking about people on the street. Its goal ultimately, is to cull the population through medical means, scientific means, and in the modern age, this includes the programs of poisoned air, food, and water that we're struggling with in the West. It just, you know, it, it is frightening to think that in this day and age, Concepts like this are going on, and and the more you point out, the more people can actually see it in progress and see it working, and and it's hard to not get swept away by it, not in it, but by it, because the powerful 
organizations and people that are running it have control of everything. Well, they do, and that's one reason why the history that we're talking about is not widely known. For example, when I was in school, all the history books that we learned from all the way up through high school were paid for by the Rockefeller family. If you track down the funding for many history books and textbooks, you'll find that it inevitably goes back to some wealthy family or a beneficiary or another. And I'm just going to say now, folks, if there is a powerful, wealthy family behind the funding of any history book, then you should immediately throw it in the trash. <laughs> Unfortunately. I mean, it, it, you know, when you go back to the 19th century, it was the Rockefellers, the Mellons, the Carnegies, all of them. And they were all involved in this. Oh, of course. Of course they were. And not only were they involved in it, but as we'll discuss, that they're involved in it on record. There is a very clear paper trail. Uh, it's not as if anything I'm talking about today is a secret. Everything that I plan to share today, I encourage the audience to doubt me and double-check the facts. You will find that everything we're going to discuss is on record uh, that's, that's so frightening, Jason, I tell you. I mean, first you destroy my, my understanding of giants, and then you you know, start to take away everything. I may not talk to you again. No, but, but no, it's just it's so fascinating to think in the history books that I read, in the history book that my, ch- my child, my grandchildren are reading. None of this is there, and it's so important because society – has to understand what's going on and and in an, in the understanding there is a fight against it. I mean, in some of the material that I saw when I was looking for the graphics, there there are signs that, that it's still on the books in many places, in many states. Oh, certainly. The laws are just not enforced. But the laws remain on the books. In fact... So would any- so at any point in time, they could they could start enforcing them, and people would be voluntarily sterilized. Well, they don't need those laws anymore. We're sterilizing ourselves now um, by consuming GMO products, accepting vaccines, opioids, um, by allowing ourselves to consume sterilants in our food, like cottonseed oil. Uh, we actually are doing their job for them now. But the relevance of the older side of this, the relevance of the older uh, facts that we've documented, uh, is that by looking at this history, we can understand how we got where we are. And that's very important. In order to understand the present, we must understand the past, and we must know our enemy. We have to understand our opponents. And uh, what we found is... uh, there's a remarkable amount of documented evidence which tell us exactly what motivates these people. Well, why don't we do that? Why don't we, and at the same time, how the giants figure into all of this too, because that was fascinating. Oh, sure. We'll definitely mention the giants because at the end of the day, uh, the eugenics movement 
really began because of the discovery of giants around the world. Okay. Well, why don't we why don't we do that? Let's take everybody back to the beginning. Okay. Well, the history books tell us that eugenics began with Francis Galton and several scientific organizations in Europe. But when Galton coined the term eugenics in 1883, it was actually just a term for the practical aspect of a belief system older than Galton himself. Uh, For Galton, eugenics was a process by which the special elite caste would generationally inherit wealth and power, while the reproductive rights of lesser castes uh, would be heavily regulated and this would also include forced sterilizations. Uh, The ultimate goal of Galton's eugenics was to ensure that the most fit bloodlines would prosper while lesser groups were marginalized and gradually eradicated altogether. In other words, this was a philosophy from Galton which advocated essentially in a step-by-step basis the destruction of everyone other than the elite class. Uh, But while the term eugenics has been used for decades to identify the practice of the scientific genetic controls in the West, in reality it's only half of the equation of an arcane philosophy already inherent in the belief structure of the European upper crust by the time of Galton's endeavors. The lesser-known half was an older idea known alternately as Arianism or Nordicism. Arianism is a kind of worship of Indo-European ancestry. And although it's typically considered a Germanic concept today, thanks to World War II, it was equally prevalent among the elites of America, France, and England by the 1800s, more than 200 years ago. Regardless of the nation which hosts this ideology, it is always, without exception, married to eugenics practices. Where one is found, so too is the other, even though the consistent relationship between Arianism and eugenics has been ignored by historians. So the beginnings of Arianism are difficult to trace, but it clearly represented a rebirth of the concept of superior gods ruling over earth-born mortals, which was inherent in the ancient world. In fact, it may be described as a scientific form of divine descent by which special families inherit the right to rule by virtue of blood, but in this case, the concept of the gods of old have been replaced with an ancestral superior race. In other words, one inherits the right to rule not because one descends from Ra or Zeus, but rather because one's ancestors were a biologically superior type. So, uh, in many ways, Arianism is a scientific version of the belief systems of places like ancient Egypt or Mesopotamia. It's just a scientific revision. 
Wow. So, yes. One of the earliest prophets of Arianism was Arthur de Gobineau, a French aristocrat who moonlighted as a novelist and poet between 1853 and 1855. Gobineau published his magnum opus titled The Inequality of Human Races in two parts. This book outlines Gobineau's theoretical history of a lost super race, which had founded all the great civilizations of history, which he referred to as Aryans. Now, a central tenet of Gobineau's Aryan gospel was the idea that this super race had fathered the Indian, Assyrian, Greek, Chinese, and Italian cultures, and also lost Aryan civilizations once located in the United States of America. So Gobineau had accelerated the idea that was growing increasingly popular at the time that the ancestors of the Western elite had been the godfathers of civilization and therefore had a right to the lands that their ancestors occupied. And this idea grew and grew in influence uh, over the next century. Uh, Gobineau felt that the fall of the Aryans from their former status had happened due to mixture with lesser human beings, uh, including various races. Uh, his writings also connected race mysticism with the notion that lost traces of the inherently superior Aryan may still be present in certain segments of the human gene pool, therefore laying a fundamental block uh, in the ideology eventually embraced by the Third Reich. Uh, the writings of Arthur de Gobineau uh, literally shaped the face of a race religion emerging in Europe and America among elite houses and institutions in connection with this, Gobineau was also one of the first to attempt to translate the ancient Mesopotamian cuneiform tablets. Uh, he was searching for evidence of his ancient Aryans in the ancient Mesopotamian civilization. The great composer Richard Wagner promoted Gobineau's writings in Germany, and Professor Ludwig Schiemann set out to convert the German people to his doctrines. The inequality of human races went on to become one of the pillars, not only of the Nazi party, but of the American eugenics society, which was developing contemporaneously. Um, another very influential proponent of Arianism in the late 1800s and early 1900s was the French anthropologist Georges Vacher de la Pauge, who really may be considered the architect of the New World Order. Uh, la Pauge studied law and anthropology in the university circuit. He absorbed the works of Darwin, Herbert Spencer, Galton and Alphonse de Candal, all prominent Darwinians and eugenicists. And like, like Gobineau before him, Lepage believed that the ancient Indo-Europeans and their descendants 
uh, were the last remainder of the ideal Aryan stock. Uh, Lapouge used his tenure as professor of anthropology at the University of Montpellier to articulate his concept of anthroposociology, which was a form of socialism by which eugenics could be implemented in national policy to favor the elite Aryans. Anthroposociology demanded the removal of the concepts of God and the supernatural altogether from the European mind, since Lapalge considered them to be barriers to the amorality required to allow for a purely scientific dictatorship empowered to regulate the breeding and occupations of the population. After becoming a magistrate and prosecutor, Lapalge actually used archaic laws which were still on the books to persecute people for religious expression in public. In his two major works, Social Selections and The Aryan, His Social Role, both published in the 1890s, Lapalge outlined his propose to the future through the destruction of individual rights and the implementation of a compartmentalized society where everyone practiced a specific role or service and reproductive rights strictly controlled in order to perpetuate a purely Aryan aristocracy. In this new order, specific types of humans would be bred to fulfill specific tasks or roles assigned to them for life, and it was Lapalge's proposed system that inspired the socialist dystopia in Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. So if you've ever read the novel Brave New World, by Aldous Huxley, you're reading a fictional account of the type of world that Georges Lapalge believed should be created uh, on behalf of the world elite. Wow. Could... It, I just, you know, you, you, this sounds like science fiction, and it's not. It's reality, and it's frightening. Oh, certainly. Certainly it is. Um, the The fact is, these people, they don't play games. You know, if a eugenicist publishes a dystopian novel uh, like Brave New World, we ought to take that seriously, and we should search for evidence of, of those types of activities in the world we live in. But we'll, we'll be talking about Huxley some more later and where his ideas actually came from, because I believe it will shock many people. Um, uh, Lapalge actually considered capitalism to be the greatest obstacle to his eugenics utopia, and the reason for that is uh, he noted that capitalist societies favored the success of Jews, and Lapalge believed that the Jews were the great tribal enemies of his Aryans. Uh, the disdain for the Jews in Lapalge's teachings actually served to heighten the same sentiment among other Aryanists in Europe, and we know fully well now the deadly results that this translated into in the 20th century. Uh, but bearing in mind that Lapalge's major works were published in the 1890s, 
an event that occurred between 1889 and 1890 uh, could be of incredible significance to the history of this subject because it was then, while excavating a Bronze Age burial mound at Castle Nou in Mediterranean France, that Georges Vacher de la Palge discovered what for him probably represented scientific proof of his theories, for it was then that Lepage unearthed the bones of a gigantic skeleton, uh, a discovery he published in Nature magazine. Uh, popularly known today as the Giant of Castle New, the bones consist, consisted of the shaft of a femur, one tibia fragment, and a portion of a humerus, and according to Lepage's measurements, the femur was 16 centimeters thick, which is 80% thicker than the femur of a normal-sized human male, and the complete skeleton would have stood around 3.5 meters, which is around 11 feet tall or larger. Remarkably, Lepage's discovery was actually reviewed by his peers and none of them questioned the size of the skeleton, although some did suggest that this could have been a diseased individual. Lepage actually collected 40 skulls from the Castle New burial ground, one of which belonged to a young man who was determined to have been more than 6 feet 7 inches tall. The skull was long-headed, or dolichocephalic, and these, char these characteristics uh, may in turn have influenced the development of the idealized conception of the Aryan as a tall, dolichocephalic blonde. So there's actually an anthropological discovery here which went on to help to identify the ancestors of the Aryans and the physical characteristics of the people who the eugenicists in Europe uh, would consider their descendants. And this is precisely why, if you should watch any document documentaries on Nazi racial science, you'll notice that they were very into measuring the skulls uh, of the population to determine uh, how much Aryan blood uh, the family may still have. And those practices come from this type of anthropology. Now, reflective of the prominence of the racial theories of Lepage and Gobineau at this time, some medical journals which reported the giant of Castle New actually use Arianist lingo. Uh, for example, this is a quote from the medical bulletin. In a prehistoric cemetery lately uncovered near Montpellier in the south of France, among other things found and reported to the Paris Academy, two skulls evidently belonging to the Aryan race and some human bones that, judged from their proportions, must have belonged to a man at least 10 feet in height. So what's interesting about Lepage's discovery is not only were the anthropological and scientific publications ready to acknowledge the large skeletons found, but they also acknowledge them wrapped in Arianist terminology. And this is a perfect illustration of how eugenics was already infesting anthropology in the Western world at the time. 
So following these excavations, Lapalge sent to his benefactors requesting additional money and resources. And eventually his quest to find the traces of his ancient Aryan lineages went to new and disturbing lengths. In one incident, he lured a group of young girls between 10 and 16 years of age back to his lab where he convinced them to remove their clothes so he could measure their heads and chests. Um, his fellow professors had him banned from the University of Montpellier in 1892 due to his extreme socialist leanings and erratic behavior, although, as we will discuss later, he became the darling of American politicians and eugenicists at this time. Um, so these two men, Arthur de Gobineau and Vacher de la Pauge, these two men are exemplary of the development of this sort of ideology, which incorporates a cult of the ancestors with scientific racialism and the way that it found its way into anthropology and law. Um, at this point, uh, we will discuss one of the most disturbed and yet influential men who ever lived. When Richard Wagner introduced de Gobineau's theories to Germany, one of the disciples that he won to the Aryan cause was a man named Houston Stuart Chamberlain. Originally an Englishman, Chamberlain became a German citizen in 1916 and wrote propaganda for the German government in World War I. He eventually received an Iron Cross from the Kaiser. Chamberlain believed that the Jews were attempting to marry their daughters into pure-blooded Aryan stock in Germany to degrade the genetics of the population. So with Chamberlain, we see the concept of the ancient blood feud between the Jews and the Aryans continue. Chamberlain's magnum opus, The Foundations of the 19th Century, was published in 1899 and became immensely popular in technocratic circles. Uh, like his peers, Chamberlain believed that identifying and nurturing the Aryan genetics in the population was the key to creating a new golden age, and he once described inbreeding between Aryans and lesser races as an incestuous crime against nature. Chamberlain advocated the outlawing of interracial marriage and the institution of scientifically determined reproduction rights. Uh, any newborn babies uh, exhibiting signs of weakness or disability would be taken care of through infanticide. In foundations, Chamberlain actually went as far as attributing every major personality and accomplishment throughout all of history to the Aryan race. Uh, Dante, Goethe, the Apostle Paul, and Jesus Christ were all now Aryans. Uh, yeah, and right. the Renaissance, <laughs> right, and the Renaissance was credited to a rich Aryan ancestry in Italy. So importantly, the foundations also significantly expanded the prehistoric heritage of the Aryans. Uh, 
Chamberlain included the entire pagan ancestry of the original Indo-European race, uh, including the Celts, Germans, Greeks, and Latins. Uh, superior among all of these groups were Chamberlain's Teutons, who were a type of genetic elite. And of course, these Teutons uh, in his day were perceived as being the elite of society then living. Uh, but at any rate, like Lapalge, Chamberlain believed that the ancient Aryans were a race of giants. And this is illustrated in his description of the idealized Aryan physical type, which includes such features as great, radiant, and heavenly eyes, golden hair, gigantic stature, lengthened skull, and symmetrical muscular development. Now, Another significant development in Chamberlain's foundations is the fact that, along with the gigantic Celts, he also considered the tribes of biblical giants who confronted the Israelites in the Old Testament to have been an Aryan people. And this is actually a quote from the foundations. These are our kinfolk, these are those children of Anak, the men of great stature, who inspired the Israelites with such terror when the later first secretly entered southern Palestine on a scouting expedition. To them belong those Rephaims, who carried gigantic spears and heavy mail of iron. Certain it is that the Amorites, and at least a portion of the Philistines, were tall, fair, blue-eyed, they belong to the type Homo Europus. So for Chamberlain, it was not the conquest of Joshua, but racial mixing, which caused the downfall of the Amorites and other tribes of biblical giants. Uh, by adding the biblical giants to the Aryan family tree, Chamberlain had provided even more fuel for the fires of resentment already growing among eugenicists towards the Jewish people in Europe. In fact, Chamberlain blamed the Jews for virtually every failure of his Aryans throughout history. The influence of Chamberlain and the foundations of the 19th century were paramount. By 1938, the book had been through 24 editions and sold over a quarter million copies. George Bernard Shaw, a proponent of population control and the elimination of religion, hailed the book as a magnificent manifesto and a masterpiece of scientific history. Kaiser Wilhelm II distributed the book among his royal court and held public readings of its passages, which he hailed as a hymn to Germanism and the salvation of mankind. And on one occasion, the Kaiser explained to Chamberlain, God sent your book to the German people and you personally to me. So it should come as no surprise that Chamberlain was among the first to endorse the burgeoning Nazi movement. In fact, it was Chamberlain who wrote encouraging letters to Adolf Hitler, inspiring him onward, and even in the face of failures such as the Beer Hall push. 
uh, Hitler and Joseph Goebbels personally visited Chamberlain at Beirut in 1923 and 1926. And it was a letter that Chamberlain wrote to Hitler in 1923, which inspired Hitler to overthrow uh, the parliament and abolish democracy. As a member of the Nazi party, Chamberlain contributed to its publications, and on his 70th birthday, his book was proclaimed the gospel of the Nazi movement. Upon his death in 1927, Chamberlain's funeral was attended by a depressed Adolf Hitler. One thing that is certain is that Houston Stewart Chamberlain was prone to periodic breakdowns, but what is less known is that he himself acknowledged that these episodes were not only caused by demons, but that the same demons were the source of his writings. And I think this is very important. Uh, the following quote is from William Shriver and Ron Rosenbaum's The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. Hypersensitive and neurotic and subject to frequent nervous breakdowns, Chamberlain was given to seeing demons who, by his own account, drove him on relentlessly to seek new fields of study and get on with his prodigious writings. One vision after another forced him to change from biology to botany to the fine arts to music to philosophy to biography to history. It was during a particularly grueling episode of demonic harassment that Chamberlain actually formulated his theories on Arianism. Um, this occurred in 1896 when he was returning from Italy. Uh, the presence of a demon became so forceful that he got off the train and shut himself up in a hotel room, and he wrote feverishly until he had a biological thesis on racial history. Now, Chamberlain actually wrote about these demons in his own autobiography, in which he acknowledged that the words they inspired did not seem like his own, and the work he produced during these periods was beyond his own knowledge. During a period from April 1st, 1897 to October the 31st, 1898, Chamberlain was again possessed by a demon who drove him to fervishly write, and the result was the book, Foundations of the 19th Century, which went on to be hailed by the Reich as the gospel of the Nazi movement. So in the life of Houston Stuart Chamberlain, we begin to see that there is a spiritual component uh, to the doctrines of this international racial cult, and it's very very interesting uh, when we consider that these people always use atheism and science to support their goals, even though they themselves feel there's a spiritual component which inspires them. This type of double standard and hypocrisy, uh, as we'll, we'll talk about soon, is still inherent in the culture today. Um, so at this point, the history sort of diverges. Uh, since the personalities we've thus far discussed um, inspired eugenics in both America and Germany. And while the mythical racial determinism, which gave rise to the Nazis, is frequently discussed in all manner of media, 
the translation of Arianism to America and the horrific events which unfolded here are rarely, if ever given, noteworthy space in historical studies. And like we were saying earlier, part of the reason for this is that the families involved who perpetuated these crimes against humanity still hold immense power and wealth in America. The American eugenics movement adopted Arianist belief, uh, the types of philosophy outlined by Gabinu, Lapalge, and Chamberlain, wholesale, wholesale. There was no editing. Uh, there was no part of it which was not fully accepted by American eugenicists. And this is nowhere more apparent than in the writings and activities of one of the most influential men of the 20th century, Madison Grant. Now, Grant held membership in the American Eugenics Society, the Immigration Restriction League, the International Committee on Eugenics, and he also served as a co-founder of the Galton Society, so this gentleman was an overachiever for the cause. Um, he also held control over the Eugenics Records Office at Cold Spring Harbor as the chief racial categorizer. So Madison Grant held uh, a position of great influence in determining what types of people should be eliminated from American society. In 1916, Grant published The Passing of the Great Race, a book which adapted the blood religion of Arianism into an Americanized form. And when the French edition of the book was published in 1926, none other than Georges Vacher de la Palge, the Arianist and Giants discoverer of France, wrote the introduction. In fact, la Palge and Madison Grant held positions together in several eugenics organizations, including the Galton Society. So Madison Grant extended the presence of gigantic stature as a signal of racial superiority all the way back to the Paleolithic period. And he also followed in the footsteps of his European brothers in claiming traces of Nordic blood among the biblical giants such as the Philistines and Amorites, again assimilating these people into the Aryan heritage. Grant believed that the modern descendants of these Aryans should all be the rulers, organizers, and aristocrats of modern society. Now, Grant believed that the colonial founders of America were all of Aryan descent, but they were under threat by immigration of non-Nordic people. He promoted the implementation of a state-sponsored program by which inferior genetic types and handicapped individuals would be isolated and sterilized by social programs, which he felt would perfect the American people within 100 years. Um, he recommended that non-Aryan racial types should be isolated into government-funded ghettos, and the reproductive rights of the nation should be controlled through a state regulated health care system. In order to accomplish his programs, he openly called for the repealing of the Constitution 
and he achieved great success in a number of his endeavors with the complicity of a willing government. Among his many successful projects was the passing of the Immigration Restriction Act of 1924, which limited immigration to the U.S. to those countries considered to have the most potent Aryan genes. Uh, his influence was also essential to the passage in 1924 of the Racial Integrity Act, which criminalized interracial marriage between whites and other ethnic groups. Along with the Racial Integrity Act, Virginia also passed the Sterilization Act, which led to the forced sterilization of individuals with hereditary illnesses. And in 1927, the U.S. Supreme Court somehow decided that the Sterilization Act was constitutional, which swung the door wide open for the eugenics agenda to rapidly increase in America. Now, Grant maintained a close connection with his fellow Arianists in Europe. Uh, his influence was essential in George's De La Pauge obtaining membership in the Galton Society. It was also due to Grant's request that LaPauge presented at the Second International Congress of Eugenics at the American Museum of Natural History in 1921. At this conference, LaPauge delivered a keynote address and stated, America, I solemnly declare that it depends on you to save civilization and to produce a race of demigods. Other speakers at the Congress include such notable eugenicists as Margaret Sanger and Elise Herdlichka. Now, what's interesting here is that Elise Herdlichka was the anthropologist in the Smithsonian who made the decision to deny and conceal the existence of gigantic skeletons found in ancient tombs in North America. So the policy of denial concerning the ancient North American giants, is a consequence of Herdlichka's policies, which he began enacting in 1910. So at these conferences, Herdlichka, the giant's denier, was rubbing shoulders and presenting alongside Vacher de la Pauge, who had discovered the 11-foot-tall Aryan in Mediterranean France. And what we have here is evidence that people involved in this movement could accept the existence of a superior physical type among the ancestry of some people, but not among others. And this is really uh, all having to do with the sort of racial categories that all of humankind were expected to fit into in the science surrounding eugenics. Now, Margaret Sanger is mostly known for founding Planned Parenthood in 1942 and promoting the concept of birth control in the United States. Um, but what is never discussed is that Sanger was actually a highly effective agent of eugenics and an official member of the American Eugenics Society uh, under the name Noah Slee. In her many speeches, Sanger repeatedly referenced people like Charles Davenport, Georges de la Pauge, Francis Galton, and Madison Grant. In fact, she advocated the technocratic, highly managed society 
envisioned by Lapalge in his works. Sanger's philosophy was that birth control and eugenics had the same end, which was to eliminate the unfit, unproductive, and undesirable among humanity, which she referred to as the weeds. Sanger had received her education in eugenics from Havelock Ellis, who was also her lover and the individual who introduced her to the occult. An ardent practitioner of theosophy, on January the 8th, 1936, Margaret Sanger gave a speech at the headquarters of the Theosophical Society at Adyar, India. In her speech, she advocated eugenics programs, including forced sterilization of the feeble-minded epileptics and those with inheritable diseases, and announced, I believe this moment Belong, this movement belongs to those who are helping the evolution of the human race. Now, Sanger was just one of a great many American eugenicists who were members of the Theosophical Society. Uh, as many people listening to this are probably aware, the most prominent architect of Theosophy was a woman named Helena Blavatsky, who wrote two large books reformatting the entire history of the human race. Uh, in The Secret Doctrine and Isis Unveiled, Blavatsky spends considerable space discussing the existence of an ancient race of giants, which she usually equates with survivors of Atlantis or the builders of Babylon, and who are the ancestors of the Aryans. Many people are aware of the influence that theosophy had upon the Nazis, but the public is generally ignorant as to its tremendous influence among American eugenicists. And one reason for this is, at the time, it was widely admitted that Blavatsky's racial root races, her racial hierarchy, that was used in the tenets of theosophy were actually based on the racial categories defined by uh, Arthur de Gobineau in The Inequality of Human Races in 1853. So with theosophy, or at least in the writings of Blavatsky, we see a glimpse of this twilight realm where mysticism, religion, and racial biology begin to intersect. Um, now, by the early 20th century, several wealthy American families had become deeply involved in financing eugenics in both America and Europe, including Carnegie, Rockefeller, and the Harriman families. Uh, this is a quote from a book called War Against the Weak by Edwin Black. I highly recommend this book to anyone interested in this subject. And begin quote, in 1904, the Carnegie Institution established a laboratory complex at Cold Spring Harbor on Long Island that stockpiled millions of index cards on ordinary Americans. Again, ordinary Americans, as researchers carefully plotted the removal of entire families, bloodlines, and whole peoples. From Cold Spring Harbor, eugenics advocates agitated in the legislatures of America, as well as the nation's social, 
service agencies and associations. The Harriman Railroad Fortune paid local charities, such as the New York Bureau of Industries and Immigration, to seek out Jewish, Italian, and other immigrants in New York and other crowded cities and subject them to deportation, confinement, or forced sterilization. The Rockefeller Foundation uh, was one of the primary financial supporters of eugenics in Germany. Many times there are studies published today which talk about Rockefeller's influence on American politics, uh, but the really, really dark secret about the Rockefeller Foundation is the role that this organization uh, played in the rise of Nazism. By the 1920s, Rockefeller funding was supporting the work of several prominent German Aryanists, including Agnes Bloom and Hermann Pohl. Uh, Rockefeller also funded the work of Ottmar von Verstur, the eugenicist who counted Joseph Mengele among his protégés. The Rockefeller Foundation also funded the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute for Anthropology, Eugenics, and Human Heredity, and even kept the Institute afloat during the Depression, so they wouldn't even have been able to pay their electric bill without Rockefeller. Um, The Kaiser Wilhelm Institute was the pillar of the scientific racism that fueled the darkest policies of Nazi Germany. Uh, Rockefeller also donated $325,000 for the construction of a new building for the Institute for Psychiatry in Munich in 1928. The Munich Institute was devoted to associating criminal behavior and disease with one's own genetic descent. The Rockefeller, Carnegie, and Harriman families, as well as J.P. Morgan, Mary Duke Biddle, Cleveland Dodge, John Harvey Kellogg of the beloved Kellogg's Breakfast Cereal family, and Clarence Gamble of Procter & Gamble, contributing the funding for the Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory in New York, which became home of the eugenics record office and the heart of the most important eugenics research in America. At this time, the American Eugenics Society embarked on a program to eradicate the poor, minorities, and all bloodlines in the U.S., not of Nordic or Anglo-Saxon descent. This program included the elimination of Native Americans, African Americans, Jews, Hispanics, Caucasians of Southern Italian and East European descent, and also under threat was any American family that had experienced more than one generation of poverty, which were targeted for mandatory sterilizations. The expansive ambitions of this society had targeted over 14 million Americans for elimination. In order to justify their agenda, the society employed anthropologists in the American Association for the Advancement of Science and the Smithsonian, to formulate a type of racial hierarchy into which variations of humankind were cataloged. The public's wide acceptance of racial determinism allowed the elite forces behind eugenics to openly implement their initiatives, which led to the emergence of a barbaric period in American history that saw the legal sterilization of over 60,000 people in 27 U.S. states, 
doctors were encouraged to engage in lethal neglect, allowing patients to die if they lacked the proper genetic pedigree or d demonstrated any inferior genetic characteristics. Uh, the Institute for the Feeble-Minded in Lincoln, Illinois, gave patients milk from a herd of cattle infected with tuberculosis, which increased mortality rates by 30 to 40 percent. And by 1911, the Carnegie Institute, the American Breeders Association, and the United States Department of Agriculture had partnered and were working together outlining a final solution to rid America of those deemed inferior in mass. This plan you know what, which was... I, I, let me interrupt to say, you, you, repeat that last sentence because people will recognize a phrase from it that was connected to Germany. The uh -huh. final solution. By 1911, uh, the Carnegie Institute, uh, the American Breeders Association, and the United States Department of Agriculture uh, had worked together outlining a final solution. Uh, the final solution was to permanently rid society of those deemed uh, genetically inferior. And the plan, which was well-funded with both tax dollars and Carnegie money, was to build lethal gas chambers for the quote-unquote painless killing of all individuals who the eugenicists deemed unworthy of life. This means that by 1911, the public-private partnership in America was actively organizing to commit mass murder on an industrial scale within the United States. And again... Um, this is all information which is on record. B before people accept that government bureaucracies should regulate anything remotely close to food or health care, they need to inform themselves on this history. Because it has now been well over 100 years since the federal government in the United States sided with the eugenicists. Um, at this point, uh, I'd like to digress to an extent and talk about the close alliance between eugenics and archaeology, because I feel that this is really important. And this alliance has existed, uh, or did exist, by the end of the 19th century. To begin with, uh, Flinders Petrie the man who is honored today as the father of modern archaeology, the man who discovered the chronology of ancient Egypt as we understand it today. Flinders Petrie, father of archaeology, was a devout eugenicist. In his manifesto, Janus in Modern Life, Petrie stated, quality of race determines the future, and he himself lobbied for sterilization of the unfit and the poor, and suggested that the state should target and tax down lesser stocks of humans and forbid them education so that only superior breeds could flourish financially and assume positions in government and academia. Uh, for Petrie, archaeology and eugenics were aspects of the same discipline, 
and he made none other than Francis Galton a consistent collaborator in anthropology. In fact, during his career of over 50 digging seasons in Egypt, Petrie sent all the skeleton, skeletons, skulls, and bones to Galton's laboratory at University College London. And Galton's correspondences with Petrie regarding the anthropology of the skeletons informed his own interpretations of human history. So right from the beginning, we can see that professional archaeology as a science was allied with eugenics because here we have the person hailed as the father of modern archaeology uh, who was a direct associate of some of the most prominent eugenicists at the time. And the eugenicists were actually helping Petrie to interpret history. So for those who don't believe that history has been tampered with, I don't think you can come up with any greater example than this. Um, several early secretary generals of the Smithsonian were affiliated with eugenics organizations or worked directly for the families who financed the worldwide eugenics movement. Uh, for example, Samuel P. Langley worked for Andrew Carnegie at the Allegheny Observatory becoming, before becoming the third Secretary General at the Smithsonian. Langley was also hand-chosen by Andrew Carnegie to sit on the board of directors of the Carnegie Institute of Science, which is another early bastion for scientific racism and the later home of the Eugenics Records Office. Another influential eugenicist to hold an important position within the Smithsonian was Charles Doolittle Walcott, the fourth Secretary General. And Walcott had previously worked for J.P. Morgan at the New York State Museum and was a personal friend of Ailes Herlichka. Walcott supported the view that God himself had initiated the Darwinian uh, eugenics process of natural selection in order to perfect humankind. So this is the power structure of the Smithsonian during some of its most important years, equally as wrapped up in eugenics uh, as the institutions in Europe and Germany. Elise Herlitschka himself was a Czech-born anthropologist and eugenicist who in 1910 became curator of the Department of Anthropology at the Smithsonian and it was at this time that Herlitschka became the first giant's denier within the National Museum. He attacked the idea that the Tall Ones had existed in public interviews as well as in his published works. And it is widely believed by serious scholars, including myself, that Elise Herlitschka was the person who made the decision to conceal or remove from the record the existence of the ancient large skeletons found in the prehistoric tombs in America. And the motive for this would be very simple, since the Aryanists around the world had come to regard ancient giants as their own ancestors, it would be very inconvenient if a race, such as the Native American, who they had targeted for elimination, also had ancestors of gigantic stature. Uh, this may seem absurd to us today, but it's very important that people understand that the personalities we're discussing took these ideas seriously enough to engage in mass murder. Uh, so a simple anthropological cover-up 
really wouldn't be that big a deal. Clearly, by the time Herdlitschka became curator of the Department of Anthropology at the Smithsonian, Arianism and eugenics had infested anthropology and archaeology in both Europe and America. Now, contemporaneously in Germany, Professor Gustav Kosina, the professor of German archaeology at the University of Berlin, had concluded that he had discovered the signature ancient artifacts of the ancient Aryans. And Kosina came up with the idea that any territory in the world where these artifacts were found actually belonged to Germany. And Kosina's willing use of archaeology to support an ethno-political viewpoint was a valuable resource to German imperialism. In fact, Kosina's ideas were used to justify the Nazi invasion of Poland because the remains and artifacts of the people he considered the ancient Aryans have been found in Poland also. Um, so the ideology of the Third Reich uh, was sustained 100% by a merger of science and mysticism, and um, I think at this point it may be a good time to go into the actual uh, spiritual practices uh, of many members of the Reich, the SS funded and staffed archaeological excavations, and Heinrich Himmler himself was actually in charge of many of the sites of interest. At an art exhibit in Berlin in 1934, Adolf Hitler and Goebbels were photographed in front of a reconstructed Bronze Age burial of a prehistoric Aryan. In addition, the regalia of the Nazi party were retrieved from the symbolism of ancient European cultures. This included the swastika, even though over 60 years of history have assured us that the Nazis actually appropriated it from India. In fact, the swastika was adopted because it frequently occurs on the pottery of copper, bronze, and Iron Age cultures, uh, which the Nazi racialists had identified as the Aryans. A deep spiritual element really emerged among the National Socialists uh, during this time. Heinrich Himmler uh, was also the director of an organization called the SS Ananerbe, a nationalized archaeological organization um, the name means inherited from the forefathers. And the Ananerbi oversaw the excavation of numerous significant sites, including Viking trading posts, Neolithic settlements, and Bronze Age burial mounds. Hitler's goal for the Ananerbi was to aid in the creation of a new culture following the victory of the Aryans over the entire world. Uh, to accomplish this task, the Ananerbi published magazines, journals of anthropology and genealogy, and worked through no less than 50 research institutes. Uh, Himmler himself organized an SS mission to Tibet in 1939 in a quest to discover the hidden masters described in the publications of the Theosophical Society. Uh, in a press release published 
on July 21st, 1939, several noteworthy discoveries are mentioned from this trip, including a rich ethnological collection, cult objects, and other finds. The article also mentions that experiments were carried out in earth magnetic research on this trip and states that Dr. Schaefer had secured an extensive 108-volume sacred script of the Tibetans. Uh, the Anunurbi also conducted a mission to Iceland in 1938, searching for altars to Thor and Odin, but the mission was cut short, partly due to uncooperative Icelandic government officials. So Himmler himself had become interested in the, the occult by 1922, um, by 1924, he had fully embraced mysticism and Arianism, abandoning his earlier Catholic faith, uh, uh, and his occultism informed his eugenics. Um, this is a quote from Hans Trittle regarding Himmler. Himmler was interested in mysticism and the occult from an early age. He tied this interest into his racist philosophy, looking for proof of Aryan and Nordic superiority from ancient times. Now, the Lavelsberg SS castle in Westphalia underwent major redesigns under Himmler. The axis of the North Tower at Wavelsberg was going to become Himmler's future center of the earth after the Nazi victory. The lower section of the tower, known as the crypt, was built in the fashion of the Corbelled Tholos Bronze Age tombs of the eastern Mediterranean and Iberian Peninsula. In the center of the crypt, a low circular structure was built, which encloses a sunken area with a single entryway. This crypt would have eventually included vases containing the ashes of deceased SS members. In essence, the North Tower Crypt is a near-exact imitation of the burial practices of the Hallstatt culture and the sacred enclosures associated with the same culture. Uh, overlooking this area in the ceiling was a single swastika, also appropriated from Bronze Age and Celtic cultures. So with the Lavelsberg SS castle, uh, what Himmler was attempting to accomplish was a recreation of the funerary rites of the ancient cultures which were seen as Aryan ancestors in Europe. Um, it is well known that Himmler's belief in spiritism and reincarnation actually guided his activities. Uh, for Himmler, reincarnation followed the bloodline, a person returned through one's own descendants. This meant that Himmler considered himself to actually be the ancient Aryans uh, with which he was so obsessed. Uh, and in meditations, he believed that the spirits of his ancestors guided him. So in 1933, Himmler oversaw the creation of the first concentration camp at Dachau. The guidance of those entities he believed to be his spiritual ancestors and former incarnations 
would lead him to the murder of six million people in concentration camps and involvement in the deaths of 46 million Europeans by the end of World War II. So again, we find uh, yet another major player in the field of eugenics who, although employing science to support his policies, is being guided by a spiritual component. Uh, So uh, this is a wonderful example of the true spirituality which was happening uh, at the time in uh, Nazi Germany. Uh, What I would like to emphasize here is that of all the most diabolical individuals, uh, there is some type of other-than-human influence in their lives, whether it is the demons who Chamberlain admitted fueled his writings, the previous incarnations of Himmler, uh, or the Theosophical Society's ascended masters. There's always an element in this cult uh, of something other than human which informs the practitioners. And the truth of this phenomenon is documented in the lives of famous eugenicists throughout history. Um, For example, Aldous Huxley engaged in mystic practices coupled with hallucinogens as detailed in his classic book, Doors of Perception. Um, His viewpoints on these practices are outlined in an essay entitled Drugs That Shape Men's Minds, written in 1958, where Huxley states, insofar as he transcends his ordinary self and his ordinary mode of awareness, the mystic is able to enlarge his vision to look more deeply into the unfathomable miracle of existence. Uh, Huxley's essay goes as far as to equate the experiences made possible by drug use with union with God. And he predicts that a slew of mind changers will deepen the spiritual life of the communities in which they are available. The side effect of this transcendent state, however, would be political bondage. And this is another quote from Huxley, which is bitingly relevant in light of the modern opioid epidemic in America. Quote, the dictatorships of tomorrow will deprive men of their freedom, but will give them in exchange a happiness nonetheless real as a subjective experience for being chemically induced. The pursuit of happiness is one of the traditional rights of man. Unfortunately, the achievement of happiness may turn out to be incompatible with another of man's rights, namely liberty. While Huxley's Brave New World is usually interpreted as a satirical approach to eugenics, it is gradually being recognized that the novel was meant as a serious model for social reform. Um, the view of this view of Huxley's intent is is based largely upon research into his personal correspondences. Um, in his personal letters, Huxley frequently articulated his love of the elite and his disdain for the masses. Uh, this is a quote from one of Huxley's letters about 99.5% of the entire population of the planet are as stupid and philistine. The important thing is not to attack the 99.5%, but to see to it that the 
5% survives and dominates the rest. Now, transcendental or spiritual influences were also at work in the lives of individuals less recognized for their part in eugenics. Uh, In his On the Boiler, William Butler Yeats promoted abolishing education for the lower-class mob and exclusive breeding among the ruling class, uh, whose right to rule would be the product of marriage and descent. William Butler Yeats was a member of the European Eugenic Society, and he felt that sharing the gifts of reading and writing with the masses was a form of violence that had created a hell of European society. He shared the belief of the Arianists that the lesser humans were breeding too rapidly, and he advocated a full and open physical war against those he considered lower types of humans. Now, Yeats was not only an occultist, but also a member of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, an influential magical order founded in London by McGregor Mathers in 1888. McGregor Mathers believed that he was under the guidance of the same uh, secret chiefs who had guided theosophy when he founded the Order of the Golden Dawn. The goal of members of the Order, such as Yeats, was the use of Kabbalistic magic to make contact with an entity known as the Holy Guardian Angel, a transcendent being which supposedly represented the Higher Self. Like most Golden Dawn members, Yeats had also ventured into theosophy and married his occult education with eugenics. Uh, Yeats referred to his higher self as the demon, which through automatic writing dictated his philosophy, including his eugenics theories. Now, another member of the Order of the Golden Dawn, who was a contemporary of Yeats, was Aleister Crowley. And Crowley went on to use the Golden Dawn system to make contact with his own holy guardian angel, a being named Iwas, in the king's chamber of the Great Pyramid in the early 1900s. Following instructions from this being, he then redesigned the rites of the Rosicrucians into a new system he called the Lima, meaning will, and under the direction of Iwas, Crowley penned the Book of the Law, a guidebook for establishing what he once referred to as a new aristocracy after an era of blood and fire. Now, it is no coincidence today that the overwhelming majority of musicians, actors, and other performers from Hollywood uh, are, in fact, engaged in magic as it is taught in the orders that Aleister Crowley founded, including the Ordo Templi Orientis, which has a major enclave in California. Now, today, it is widely thought that Adolf Hitler himself never personally engaged in occult practices, but this has recently been contradicted by an investigation into Hitler's personal library, which was deposited in Washington, D.C., after World War II. 
according to an investigative historian named Timothy Ryback, 10% of Hitler's library is composed of spiritual and occult works. And one book in particular, a copy of Dr. Ernst Schertel's Magic, History, Theory, and Practice, published in 1923, is heavily annotated by Hitler with 66 highlighted sections. These sections are heavily read and the margins repeatedly scored. Uh, In his copy of Magic, Hitler had highlighted several passages dealing specifically with causing influence in the world with the aid of spiritual or demonic forces. And several of these passages are very interesting in light of some of the things Hitler later accomplished during his lifetime. And I'll read some of those now. Uh, These are passages from this magical book, which Adolf Hitler highlighted in his own personal copy. He who does not have the demonic seed within him will never give birth to a new world. Every demonic magical world is centered towards the great individuals from whom basic creative conceptions spring. The individuals who are infected by the magician form a community or his people, the Volk, and create a complex of life of a certain imaginative framework which is called a culture. Our demon is struggling, and he is struggling in pain and hardship. We must suffer with him to share victory with him. The people, the Volk, he might gather around himself, have nothing to do with an abstract multiplicity whose good he would have to serve, but merely represent an enlargement of his own sphere. There are always a few that make the true birth of the demon, the god, the only thing important. But the particular magic of the people must be addressed as well. Only when a master magician invokes a god and has won the form can the deity enter into life and gain power over the largest concentration of individuals. These are the very passages which Adolf Hitler considered of the most importance in his own book on magic. They clearly describe the creation of a national culture with the influence and power of an other-than-human intelligence. So the point of this discussion has not been to suggest that everyone who practices the occult is inherently evil. Um, What I'm trying to convey is that in their pursuit of power, the eugenicists engaged in occult practices, which, because of their hatred for humanity, seem to have attracted some malignant influence. These influences inspired their writings and activities almost across the board. And the concept of some type of transcendent force, which directs powerful people to oppress and destroy entire populations, fits the standard definition of evil in nearly every religion or spirituality. In essence, these are black magicians, and so are their modern descendants. It is very important to recall that many of the architects of eugenics and Nazism, as we covered earlier, included the ancient biblical giants in their own ancestry, and many of them, including the Nazis, channeled and worshipped these appropriated ancestors. 
What's very interesting is that in the apocryphal book of Enoch, the souls of evil giants became malignant spirits upon the earth. Enoch also states that these forces would actually interact directly with humanity and seek to cause mass extinctions. And in one particular passage, it would seem that Enoch is describing what could be eugenics. And this is from the book of Enoch, chapter 15, verse 11. And the spirits of the giants afflict, oppress, destroy, attack, do battle, and work destruction on the earth and cause trouble. And these spirits shall rise up against the children of men and against the women, because they have proceeded from them. After World War II, the public in America had largely rejected the pseudoscience of eugenics, especially after the realization of what was happening in Nazi Germany. Uh, Therefore, in response, in 1954, Prince Bernhardt of the Netherlands, who was a ranking member of the SS, reorganized all of the major eugenics families into an international organization called the Bilderberg Group. Uh, The Bilderberg Group was a milestone in the history of eugenics because its formulation marked the point where the elite class of Europe and America decided to direct their influence towards a war against the entire human population rather than just some types of humans. This is an important distinction, an important development. Families such as Rockefeller, Carnegie, the Windsors, Rothschilds and many others directed this transformation throughout the second half of the 20th century. Uh, The plan was to no longer use individual nations such as Germany or the United States to export eugenics to the world, but instead to form international organizations that could affect entire populations with the flick of a pen. Uh, In light of this, it is now a matter of record that the establishment of the European Union was planned in a Bilderberg meeting, and it is also well known that the land that the United Nations headquarters is built on in Manhattan was donated by the Rockefeller family. Our modern world of poison food, air and water, endless war, violent migrations, economic turmoil, Deep state operators and false flag terror is the legacy of the Bilderberg Group, the Aryans, and the eugenics movement. In more recent times, these organizations have added social media and big tech titans such as Google and Facebook permanently to their annual meetings, which is why now these groups shamelessly censor and persecute people for their political opinions, views, or personal beliefs. Uh, one of the, the last points that I would like to make um, is that although all of the individuals that we've profiled today were drunk with a type of mysticism or ancestor worship, they relied 100% on science to justify their goals. Uh, There's a distinct hypocrisy in this use of Darwinian science to convince the masses to accept goals which were based on a personal religion. Uh, In this instance, with eugenics, 
science had become nothing more than an oracle, an oracle that was made to lie, an oracle made to lie by scientists themselves around the world in order to justify particular social ends. Uh, my question is this. What if science is being used in the same fashion today? Why is it that every major problem supposedly identified by modern science, from poverty to disease to global warming, is always answered with cries for population reduction? I believe that we should look closely at where the funding for our physics, anthropology, and other venues is actually coming from. Uh, in light of the information which I've shared today regarding eugenics, I would ask whether we should feel comfortable trusting what science tells us when there are clear financial ties to the state and elite institutions. Uh, why, after the troubled history that we've discussed, would we allow science to determine what is acceptable for us to believe? Good question. Mind-boggling material, too. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I kind of, you know, I, I, I keep stepping back and saying, okay, so all of this leads us to here and now and, and what is still going on, because certainly the Bilderberg Group is still very functional, um, and, and the elites are still the elites. And you know, are you suggesting that the Bilderberg Group is the one world order? I believe that the organizations like the Bilderberg Group um, served an initial purpose of reorganizing, redirecting eugenics. Uh, up to that time, eugenics was a national discipline. Arianism and the different forms of this religion would take root in a country and it would fuel fascism and nationalist policies. But after World War II, organizations like the Bilderberg Group were formed because the elites had come to regard themselves as being at war with the entire population. And that is why we see these programs today, which come from the corporations uh, and government-sponsored organizations, that are incredibly detrimental to human health. They're incredibly detrimental to the continued existence of our species. The war policies, the foreign policies of the United States only exist to cause warfare, destruction, and chaos around the world. The United Nations, with its vaccine programs, uh, it is impossible to know how many people in third world countries have been sterilized with UN vaccines that were supposedly created to fight disease. The European Union was created to absorb all the nations of Europe under the control of a single entity so that eugenics policies and laws which were destructive to human life could be enacted over many countries rather than just one or a few. The international order itself today was the brainchild of eugenicists after World War II, and it has been incredibly effective in waging war against the population. Well, I would tend to agree with you. And if you look at even the, um, the birth rate, it, it has gone down. 
and the number of people that that have to go for all sorts of <clears throat> you know in vitro fertilization and stuff like that it's it's very clear that our ability to reproduce to have children has been definitely compromised by something and i would tend to agree with you that vaccines and gmos and all of the other um things that that have been mentioned here certainly are at at you know in part responsible for what's going on i know that um it was a rumor though i do, i i i can't document it like you can document your stuff but that that the aids vaccine was intentionally sent over to africa to diminish the population and you know i i i am overwhelmingly you know upset over over just what is being done to a population that thinks it is, you know, I've often said we don't live in the land of the free and the home of the brave anymore. Um, I don't know that we ever did, to be honest with you. Uh, When you talk about how far back this all goes, it almost feels as though this country was founded in order to create this kind of a society. Well, the United States, uh, if I were going to define what I think the founders had in mind, it was kind of a free market hierarchy. And what happened is over time, for various reasons, the people came to trust powerful people. They came to trust bankers. They came to trust that the federal government had their best interests in mind, and they were gravely mistaken. You know, the... Uh, international bankers and the families who were behind eugenics, uh, these people are driven by a type of religion. This is a cult of the ancestors. The Western elite believe that they come from a genetically superior stock. They don't consider themselves to have remotely anything in common with the average person uh, in terms of heritage. And they believe they have a divine right to rule us and control us. Uh, When you have a belief system like that, uh, and it's ingrained in you from an early age, uh, in my opinion, you should never be able to hold power. You should never be able to hold influence uh, over large segments of any population. And um, the the unfortunate fact is that uh, they used, money and capitalism against us in many ways. The industrial uh, class of eugenicists in America, people like Ford, you know, in the early 20th century, they invited people to come and work for their companies and make something of themselves, while at the same time they distributed literature which defined people without as much money or success as genetically inferior. There are newspapers uh, from the time period which feature cartoons essentially labeling people without enormous success and material wealth as incompetent barbarians or even ape-like. So in many ways, uh, this is a consequence of decadence. The people of a nation, when they become decadent, they sort of fall asleep on the job and their tribal instincts begin to fade. But the point is today, 
that those of us who are awake identify the problem and uh, and learn as much about it as we possibly can, because it is only through that that we could ever hope to thwart their ends. Well, yeah, and, you know, even technology. Um, our kids aren't being taught to think anymore. They're They're being taught to rely upon what the computer tells them, and the computer is... Is, is is programmed to tell them what the elite want them to hear. So so it's kind of a matter of where do you go for the truth? Where do you go for information that that can help you to evolve? And you know it's you know you talk about the spirituality and you know my concept of spirituality has nothing to do with demons and yet that's what they were talking about when they were talking spirituality which to me was was frightening. Um, the, you mean the information I covered today? Yeah. Well, it, the fact is, you know, and, and I know how this information would sound to someone who hasn't heard it before. Believe me, I was there when I did this research. Um, my jaw was on the floor. But, yes, uh, they were, or at least they believed, they believed that they were, in contact with something other than human, which in some cases they considered it to be a past incarnation. Uh, in other cases, they considered it a Tibetan Aryan master. Uh, but reading closely, you'll find instances where they do refer to them as demons. There's a part of these people who, un- which I believe understands that really what they've partnered with is some type of transcendent evil. Well, I, I would I would not argue with you that there you know there is good and there is evil, and it's frightening to think that there. <clears throat> I mean, if you just look at society today, if you just look at the news today, I mean, there there's no kindness there. I mean, every now and then you see a, a, a you know a snippet of something that makes you go aw, but but for the most part, it's anger, it's fear, it's viciousness, it's mm. it's. It's it's a it's it's a frightening thing, and and you 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 think you think that the people that you're seeing represented there, are, you know, are people that we have put into power in many cases, and they're they're not thinking, they're not listening, they're not acting in our better interests, and no. you know you stand <laughs> back and you say what what have I done, you know, because I elected these people. And then it's, it's you know, you know I, everybody knows a few years ago I fired the entire government on Facebook and told them to pack their bags and go home. Um, and, you know, I thought I would get lots of nasty comments and stuff like that. Nobody mm-hmm. commented on it. Nobody said a thing. And I'm thinking, where are your minds? I've just insulted the entire yeah. government. <laughs> exactly. I couldn't agree more, and I understand your principle. We, we're living in an age when, you know, alternative historians and writers, they want to be your guru. They want you to question the origins of mankind. They want you to think about the stars. They want you to dream about dif- uh, different origins for civilizations like Egypt, but they never want you to engage in a politically defiant intellectual attitude 
it's just considered a taboo among many people to talk about politics. And that's very unfortunate because as I have attempted to make plain, uh, the political system is at least in part under the control of some very sick individuals. You know, I defined the the uh, belief system of the eugenicists as arcane earlier, and it is. It is mm-hmm. a very primitive. It's an arcane cult. It's the kind of thing you would expect to find among cannibals and headhunters, and yet uh, it essentially created the 20th century, the atrocities in Europe and America that were committed in the 20th century in the name of eugenics and Nazism had the same source, the same cult, the same people. They traveled and presented uh, in one another's countries. They rubbed shoulders together all the time, and their research was financed by the same families. There is no difference. Uh, The Nazi party was merely uh, the European leg of the same organizations which had taken over the United States. And don't you think it's strange, you know, with with high corporate positions, when people are, you know, applying for jobs, they employ a headhunter to find the person for the job? Oh, yeah, that's that's very interesting. Uh, The... You know, at at the end of the day, the corporation will always be hostile to freedom because the corporation only understands expansion and growth, and expansion and growth in a corporate sense have to come at the expense of human beings. Uh, There's there's simply no reconciling a, a predatory corporate attitude with a free society, in my opinion. I believe that corporations such as Google, Facebook, and Walmart are far more dangerous today than than any weapon of war. So, and it's important to remember that the Nazi Party, the Third Reich, was made up of corporations. It was called IG Farben, and uh, many modern corporations were a part of that. Uh, It's something that people don't know much about, but the Nazi economy was ran by an alliance of corporate entities, just as ours is today. Well, if if you had to give, because we're getting down to like nine minutes here, if you had to give people okay. advice, if you, if you had to give them, you, you know, you've horrified them, now give them tools to to work on and understand what's going on, what would your advice be? My first piece of advice is that you must accept that you have been lied to about everything. You have been lied to about everything, including yourself. You have been taught that you are just a number. You're meaningless. You have no purpose. Your only goal is material acquisition and to generate wealth. But this is probably the greatest lie you've been told. In fact, you are a living battery of power. Within you is the seed of greatness. God or nature, if you would rather have it that way, God or nature does not produce junk. Within you is a purpose, and it's been there your entire life. 
The best way to learn what that purpose is is to look at your natural interests and tendencies that you have had since you were a child. Look within yourself and find that purpose and then ruthlessly pursue it at all costs. Stop being a cog in the machine and begin to express who you are and to do what you were born to do because everyone exists for a reason. Everyone has a purpose. Nature works that way. This is also a biblical concept, and it's also found in a lot of spiritualities. Um, I would I would suggest that people look into some of the discoveries of uh, Carl Jung, the great psychologist, who essentially found scientific evidence that all people have a will and a purpose to exist. Now, this is the best advice I can give. Because the world system that the eugenicists created depends upon us all being a cog in their machine. Uh, if enough cogs refuse to be a part of the machine, then eventually it breaks down. And um, the best thing you so, can do is to devote your energy towards a greater purpose. So celebrating your uniqueness is the strongest tool we have. That's right, exactly, because it is within that uniqueness that you find your purpose and your destiny. And to celebrate that, indeed, like you said, that is the greatest weapon against the, the, the type of society that our enemies have attempted to create. It. And uh, you must educate yourself. Don't depend on anyone else to teach you anything. You know, even if you read my books, double-check the references, double-check everything. There's no one who can teach you a greater truth other than yourself. You have to find truths on your own. Yeah, it's. I, I think it's really important because everything you said, you know, rings true. But you you have to also acknowledge the fact that that just because it looks overwhelming doesn't mean it is. And you know, there is there are always ways of fighting and combating and having. Um, positive manifest, you know, manifestation, manifesting lives that make a difference in the world. Um, it, it's, you know, don't ever feel that you're ineffective because you're not. The, I mean, you put the book out there. I put a website out there. Other people put their words out there, put their work out there. And you never, you have to trust that a balance eventually is going to be found and the the thing the pendulum is going to swing in the other direction again and just keep putting your two cents out there because if enough of us do it then change is inevitable well the change is actually happening now the empire is crumbling the luminaries who guided this ship people like david rockefeller the big new brzezinski uh, these types of people are all dying off. The people who once served as the architects of the plans of this international order are dying. What we are left with are criminal cartels like the Clintons and Obamas who are former pawns that are now turned loose in the system without a chain. And I believe that our enemies are weak. And I believe that this evil... Uh, will eventually collapse uh, by its own weight. 
And I highly encourage everyone to heed your words. Um, find find it within yourself to to put out there and contribute whatever it is you have to say, no matter what it is, even if it's just art, even if it's just music. You know, all these things of human culture and human imagination uh, are very important, and we uh, we need these things in order to continue to exist the way that we're intended. Absolutely, and you know, I, I think informing yourself is 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 very important too. Um, when you see something that looks distasteful, at least understand it, and then and then avoid it. But but yeah. don't negate. You know, it's kind of like. Don't rush to judgment, but validate, validate, validate. And, and you know, once you do that, you know, it, it's like I tell people all the time, challenge me all the time. If I can't defend my belief system, then I shouldn't be talking it. And that's the same way with everybody. So, you know, do it kindly. Don't attack. Ask questions. And keep investigating. Because so often... You know, if somebody says that because that's what science says, then then check out science. Don't don't assume that because science has said something that science is right. Mm. Well, science has become an oracle comparable to the oracle at Delphi. And, you know, the the oracle at Delphi uh, basically was a young girl that was given drugs. And then the priests would tell the king, what the oracle said, uh, well, the priests were completely fabricating the oracle side of it and were simply using the oracle to inflict their will upon the population. And science today is has become the same thing. Uh, we're told that we have to take these vaccines in order to fight these diseases. We're told that we need to vaccinate the world. We, we're told it's okay to take these opioids uh, and these medications, and to have these scientific procedures. We're told that we're nothing standing on a ball spinning through space infinitely and that we have no significance. Uh, but remember, it was only a century ago that the same science was advocating mass exterminations as perfectly yeah. acceptable. When did science change? When did science in the West Stop serving as a mouthpiece for elite interest. That's my question. And it's a good one. <laughs> and when you find the answer, I'll have you back on. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> no, I, I, we're, we're down to our last couple of seconds here. I want to thank you so much. This has been so interesting. I so appreciate your spending your time with me. Well, thank you. I know it was a mouthful, but it's a narrative that I really wanted to share on this show because this audience is very informed, and, and you are an educator yourself, so you understand the importance of it. And um, I look forward to coming back to the show when we have new revelations concerning the tall ones. That sounds like a plan, Jason. Thank you so very much. And uh, your your website is uh, Paradise. Go ahead. ParadigmCollision.com. Yes. Okay. Thanks so much, Jason. Take care now and good night. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for being here. And uh, do check us out. Uh, This will be up on YouTube shortly. Um, Also, 
this week is special. There will be a show Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Check it all out. Good night now.